Hey everyone and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Liam McCollum Show. 2020 continues to be crazy. We're going to be talking about some of that hopefully in an upcoming commentary episode. Um, I'm trying to make a video. It'll just be me. It won't be an interview. I'm going to talk a little bit about what's going on with George Floyd, stuff like that. Um, One of the most important things is that, to me at least, was that George was a Christian. Um, He left a gospel legacy in Houston. I think that that is no coincidence as a Christian. I think that that's pretty relevant. The fact that he was spreading the message of peace and the gospel and then he gets murdered is pretty sad, but God works in interesting ways and I really hope that his death serves as a catalyst for people um, to start focusing on issues and solutions. Also, the fact that George Floyd was stopped by the police because he was apparently counterfeiting or using a counterfeit $20 bill. Um, at a store while the Federal Reserve continues to print money, trillions of dollars every day, um, as if they aren't counterfeiting. So a lot's going on, uh, and a lot of people are talking about racism, and they're rightly pointing at the police and the aggression that was being used, but I don't see a lot of people talking about solutions. I luckily... There are people like Justin Amash within the Libertarian Party who is talking about ending qualified immunity. Um, But you're not hearing much other than uh, people rightfully being angry at racism. But unfortunately, even if we were to cure racism or um, get rid of it, police brutality would still happen. A lot of killings by the police are racist, yes. Um, Not all of them are, though, which means that every single one is the state exercising its monopoly on violence, even if the specific case of police brutality isn't or is racist. Every single one is this exercise of the monopoly on violence. So my upcoming interviews will be relevant to that. And today we are gonna be talking with Tate Fegley. He has a bachelor's of arts in economics and a bachelor's of science in criminal justice at Boise State University. He also has a master's in criminal justice at Boise State and a master's in economics at George Mason University. He's currently a PhD student in economics at George Mason University. He talks a lot about police unions and officer privileges, and he's concerned with the economics of public police and whether or not privatization of police is a good idea. We're going to talk about the current structure of police departments across the United States and whether or not them being public or government entities provide certain incentives that are otherwise inefficient. His solution to police brutality would be to privatize all police. Here's tape. Hey, well, thanks, Tate. Thanks for joining the show. Um, if you want to just introduce yourself really quick, that would be great. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so I uh, am a recent graduate from the PhD uh, economics program at George Mason University. Uh, this fall, I'll be starting a postdoc uh, with the Center for Governance and Mar- Markets at the University of Pittsburgh. My research interests mainly uh, regarding the issues of police, uh, criminal justice, um, police unions, and uh, private security. I kind of wanted to get into um, the idea of privatizing police um, kind of within the context of what's going on right now. I think a lot of people are really angry and, you know, they're looking for a solution. But what I find is that a lot of people 
are kind of taken away from the solution because they're focusing on other things. You know, they're they're focusing on racism, which is obviously an issue. But I think that the source is the government. So I think to get to get really into it, I think the first thing that we need to focus on is the structural problems of the police force. Uh, can you kind of talk about the incentive structure of government police and what inherent in that makes them unaccountable? Sure. Yeah. So with government police compared to say any other or any private entity that has to uh, gain revenue through with voluntary exchange, say this perhaps is at the center of the differences we see is that, uh, Government police are funded through taxation. Uh, they don't have to find a willing customer, and this really affects the incentives that face them. And, and as far as accountability, and it, one of the major issues with police um, that I've written a bit about uh, is regarding police unions. So unions, the purpose of unions is to increase wages, increase job security for their members. And police unions are no different in this regard, but it affects the way that uh, police do their job. So uh, we think about what I focus on and with police unions are specifically the privileges that they give uh, officers in terms of uh, protecting them from different avenues of accountability, such as the criminal law or civil liability or other things as well. And what I mean by these types of privileges, these can include things like, uh, well, things that you and I as non-police don't enjoy. So things like after an officer involved shooting, a lot of police union contracts allow police uh, 48 hours, some as long as 10 days before they have to give a statement uh, in, in order to find a lawyer, even though most of them already have a union provided lawyer available to, to them. And one might say the reason for this is that they can see what's what's reported in the news, what everybody else knows, and tailor their story to that. If we're you or I, we would be expected to give a testimony right away of what happened. And prosecutors might look at inconsistencies with the facts that come out later. The other examples include uh, how police are interrogated. If we, you know, you see things on TV like uh, a good cop, bad cop routine with multiple interrogators. A lot of police union contracts say that police officers can only have, be interrogated by one person at a time. Um, they can't be threatened or uh, given certain promises that these would be considered coercion or other things like they have to be given reasonable breaks. And I wouldn't say these are necessarily unreasonable uh, protections since I believe it's the University of Michigan, they have a database of exonerations that have occurred, of false convictions. And about a quarter of these false convictions are due to uh, false confessions or coerced confessions. Mm. So I, I want to say that maybe these are certain protections that everyone else should have as well. Not, I'm not trying to imply that these are protections that police officers shouldn't have regarding interrogations, but I'd say more serious regarding accountability as far as I can surmise is regarding um, things like binding arbitration. That is, um, a lot of police departments, I think according to um, Stephen Russian, who's uh, gathered data on police union contracts in the 178 largest cities in the US, found that 87 of them contain some provision that allow 
police, if there's some kind of suspension or termination, that they can appeal this to an independent arbitrator. And uh, research of this by Mark Iris and others found uh, strangely consistently about half the time arbitrators will overturn a decision against uh, an officer uh, who's been terminated. And so it, it makes uh, police officers extremely hard to fire in this in, in in these circumstances when they can appeal. And in combination with these other privileges that police officers enjoy, Tyler Adams, in, in looking at five years worth of published arbitration decisions regarding the police, um, regarding police ter- terminations that were overturned or upheld by arbitrators, said in almost every case, either one or both parties to the dispute brought up the disciplinary history of the police officer. And this was really relevant for a lot of arbitrators' decisions, is whether this officer had a good work history or a bad work history and whether they would uphold the determination or not. But um, quite a few uh, police union contracts have provisions that uh, erase the misconduct history if they don't commit uh, similar misconduct over a certain period of time, say over a course of three years, if they uh, have a clean record, they'll just expunge the previous records. And so this can really affect that arbitration process if uh, arbitrators don't have all of this information. Another well, issue I'd like to address in this regard is regarding uh, decertification. Roger Goldman has been writing about this for decades There's I mean, as a, a potential avenue for police accountability. That is, um, in 45 states, I believe currently, there's uh, police officers are certified most often through a state entity called the Peace Officer Standard and Training Board. And these set the standards for who can become certified as a police officer. And they can also become decertified. It, it, it um, is similar to occupational licensure, that you have to have this license to be a police officer. And um, it varies widely between states what types of things can get one decertified. I mean, some of them are pretty, uh, well, it, you have to do some pretty bad things to become decertified. In, I think 20 states, uh, you have to be convicted of a felony to uh, be decertified as a police officer. Uh, so it's like, there's not many, I don't know of many occupational licenses where you have to commit an actual felony and be convicted of it to lose your license. Um, but the, there's this issue of what we call the wandering officer. Um, actually, a paper published this year by um, Grunwald and Rappaport in the Yale Law Journal covers this phenomenon of the wandering officer, but which they refer to as um, an officer who's fired from one department moves to another department. Sometimes it's when the, within the same state, and sometimes it's across state lines, which is why uh, Goldman has been pushing this national decertification index to be a national database so that hiring agencies can look at this, reference their hirees with this list. But a lot of wandering officers fall through the cracks because these aren't always reported. In some cases, um, since it is so difficult to fire officers in certain circumstances, uh, there's an exchange made between police management and officers that, well, if you uh, just resign quietly, will give you a good recommendation for your next job. Right. Um, and so in this, these cases, they're not reported to the post. And so they're not, they don't make it on these decertification lists. And so this is another issue facing uh, police accountability, mm. getting rid of, or uh, firing problem police officers and having them remain fired. And, and so this is an issue 
I'd say, well, maybe not inherent to the public sector, but much easier to um, perpetuate it. That is, in the private sector, I mean, you have unions, but there is this trade-off that um, the more benefit, just like if you pay employees more, you might uh, get it an advantage in terms of attracting better uh, employees, but you also have to remain competitive. Can you justify uh, spending this much on inputs only if you're the price people are willing to pay for the output you create is great enough to justify that. But in the case of polices, we already mentioned, since they're funded through taxation, there's not this uh, feedback mechanism of consumers saying, oh, we are willing to pay this much. Right. So, so this is an issue inherent with public sector unions. One of the issues that I've been hearing about is are the power of the purse. You know, there there aren't any signals there. They won't feel the brunt of it. They will pass, you know, any signal over to the taxpayer. A lot of people think of like profit in a way that is really bad. So you'll hear like for-profit prisons, for instance, as a derogatory term. I guess what about privatization and profit is actually good for industries like this? Sure. So, yeah, this is an issue that often the, the concept of profit is thought of as dirty. And I think it what is really important in that regard is the institutions in which, um, say, profit is generated. So when we're talking about for-profit prisons, we're not really talking about individual consumers expressing their preferences through a market. It's, um, they're fully contracted with the government. It's the government buying something. Um, they're spending tax money. It's not actual consumers um, expressing their preferences. Like when you individually buy something you want, you're demonstrating, I'm willing to pay this for the, I value whatever good or service I'm buying more than the money I'm spending on it. And so you're demonstrating that you prefer this where uh, as far as, private prisons go. So I, yes, there's an accounting profit made in the sense that the uh, people running the prison pay less than the money they receive from the government, but the government's not um, in the same sense a consumer expressing uh, value the same way individuals do. So if we think about um, say the economy generally, a, a thinker who's been very very influential in how I approach the subject um, is Ludwig von Mises, who wrote a paper called uh, Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth. And the problem he points out with a socialist system is that there is no measure of profit and loss. That is, under socialism, which he defines as when the state owns all the means of production, all the uh, factors of production. There's no exchange between factors. So all the machinery, raw materials, and so forth, they have no prices because there are no private owners of them who exchange it. And so even if you have uh, markets in consumer goods, the final goods that are created with all the machinery and inputs, we can't tell whether they were allocated to their most highly valued uses because we can't compare what people would have been willing to pay for those inputs compared to what they're willing to pay for those outputs. And so a central planner trying to decide what to produce is just completely in the dark. And this is also the case, as Mises points out in his book, Bureaucracy, with well, how he defines bureaucracies as these entities that can't engage in such economic calculation. As we mentioned with uh, police departments, they're bureaucracies because they cannot engage in economic calculation. They can't 
they don't have a price for outputs that they can compare to the price they paid for inputs. And so they can't determine whether they're allocating goods to their most highly valued uses. So in a situation where people can freely buy inputs and compete in providing outputs, a profit indicates people are the entrepreneur allocated resources to more highly valued uses. So in that way, now, under those circumstances, I think, well, economics is value-free, but most would think as that is a good thing, that that resources were allocated to more highly valued uses. And so profits are an indication that uh, value was created for consumers right? and loss is the opposite. Yeah. And so in the case of police departments, um, can we see anything that they do that is a direct consequence of not having the correct signals in the, in the, um, right area like it do they i guess do they um allocate resources in different locations that aren't necessarily the most efficient yeah they do respond to incentives uh i think a, some very good research in this regard was done by uh, bruce benson who was an economist at florida state and um one area in which he saw a big shift in police resources was after the uh, 1984 Crime Act, which made civil asset forfeiture a bigger thing in the war on drugs, where under civil asset forfeiture, especially regarding drugs, police departments could seize vehicles, other things that were even the profits from the drug trade and spend them in their own departments. So this was incentivizing police officers to allocate more resources towards drug enforcement because if they could seize valuables or the proceeds from the drug trade, in in that sense, that was a higher return from them compared to other things police officers might do. And he found in these areas where, well, it was most of the country, but since he was in Florida, he had Florida data, he found that police departments were allocating resources away from enforcing property laws against property crime and more towards drug crime and property crimes went up. And so this is one of those ways in which I, I guess I wouldn't call it profit in the sense we've been talking about where consumers are expressing a preference, but I mean, people have called this policing for profit in that police departments are allocating resources to where there's a higher financial return. I think it's the same case um, for why a lot of police departments, even though officially they're not supposed to have, say, quotas on tickets, this is another source of revenue. And we see that in, uh, I think that came further to light after the events in Ferguson with Michael Brown, that police departments in that area in Missouri, as well as other places, uh, used municipal ordinances ordinances as a source of revenue. So if people weren't upkeeping their homes, according to code, this was a source of revenue by citing them. And this was yeah, a big source of revenue for the city. And so in these ways, we see police making allocation decisions on the margin regarding financial resources. Uh, I think in a more general sense, as a bureaucracy, since they can't, I mean, outside of in the areas where police are able to get revenue, uh, they also want to find other ways of measuring output. So I think they focus on things traditionally like arrests and citations, because these are things that they can show productivity through these things. So I think that that's why there's this also another reason to focus on things like traffic enforcement, um, the drug trade, things where um, pumping up these numbers are relatively easy compared to uh, 
other measures because for the from the individual officer's perspective the more they can demonstrate this productivity i mean the, the more easily they can advance in the hierarchy of the bureaucracy and so that's what i argue in a paper i've been working on regarding community oriented policing in which a lot of police scholars advocated that police um, change how they've traditionally done policing, which is uh, focusing on uh, criminal investigation, rapid response to calls, and the kind of things we see in uh, old shows like Dragnet, where uh, Joe Friday's uh, you know, just the facts, ma'am, that police are supposed to be more um, integrated with the community. Uh, engaging in these police community partnerships to solve problems, not just responding to crimes, being more proactive. And we've just found that police departments, even though the Department of Justice handed out all these grants and police departments were happy to say, yes, we're doing community policing, they found that most of what they were doing was what they've traditionally been doing, just kind of dressed in this community-oriented policing language. And one of my arguments for why that's the case is because it's hard to measure these outputs of community-oriented policing. If I mean, some have tried to measure, say, time involved in community meetings or police officers are present or um, newsletters distributed, like trying to measure whatever they can that are trying to measure community-oriented police. But this is very difficult to do if you're in a city where crime is rising to point to measures like this rather than, oh, here's how many arrests we're, we've made. We're really you know, um, being tough on crime. Uh, these are the reasons why I think it, police are, as they're institutionally organized, are naturally pushed towards uh, this form of policing where they're focused on measurable outputs. And if those measurable outputs can be in the form of revenue, then, well, that's even better. So these are the incentives that police face in deciding where to allocate resources. And then, so you believe if, let's say, individuals were, were able to voluntarily pay for their own services through like police departments or um, private security, um, you think that certain signals would lead them away from, let's say, something that the customer wouldn't approve of, like uh, more traffic stops, more stuff like that, and then focus more on um, murders or um, protection of like property? Yeah. So what? So I look towards private security. What do they do in the world in which we live? Uh, because there are, I think the last estimates were around three to four people employed in the provision of private security as there are public police officers. So we have some examples of what they actually do. And in most cases, they're associated with some piece of private property, what the literature is called mass private property, things like shopping malls or amusement parks or marinas, these types of things where you have a piece of private property that's owned by, say, one or a few owners. And the idea being that they can kind of internalize uh, the benefits created by police because economists, when they say, oh, well, the reason why we'd want to have public provision of policing is because of a free rider problem. As if you hired a police officer to patrol around your house, well, then your neighbors, uh, without paying for it, are able to benefit from that. And so there's this free rider problem such that unless we have, uh, unless we force people to pay for private or for policing rather, that it'll be underprovided. And this would be the, I'd say most economists say this is the justification for public policing. And I'm not sure whether that's entirely accurate. Um, I hear more story. I have a Google alert for private police. Uh, a lot of the 
uh, news I get most recently has been out of England where um, the government police claim that they don't have the resources to go after certain types of petty crimes. And so you even have individuals in neighborhoods hiring police. In a lot of cases, it's homeowners associations. So you have that kind of collective, I don't know if I want to say coercive ability, but this ability to get everyone to pay. But even in neighborhoods that don't have that, um, you'll have people who choose to pay, others who don't, and it'll be provided. So it's not the case that that problem is insurmountable. But in arrangements where you have a mass private property, where you can internalize any externalities, as one might say, is you're deriving all, all the benefits of, say, patrol being provided if it's on one big piece of property because you own all of that. You as the property owner get to internalize all the benefits to your property values. And so we do see a lot of that. Um, uh, say one big example. Example here is um, selling security by Alison Wakefield, in which she looks at, and this is in England, um, places like shopping malls or entertainment complexes. And she looks at, well, what are private security doing there? And a lot of their function, I mean, in, in addition to just watching, and they perform these other functions, and, and including things like um, well, giving directions to people. Uh, putting on costumes to entertain kids. So they do all these different types of things. And say one benefit they have, as we talked about earlier about economic calculation, they're able to compare the costs of, say, paying these security officers, allocating them to different uses, and uh, what increase there is in their property values. Whereas we're, we're unable to do that with government police. Government police um, often operate in this, I want to call it the public domain since that has its own connotation, but say like roads or other public areas, there's no private owner of that. We face the same problem as under socialism, where since there's no exchange of that private property, of that, I guess I shouldn't call it property since it's unowned, of that area, we can't measure the value they create. Right. So say, um, say a public bus stop where there's robberies occurring, we might allocate more police uh, to that, bus stop we might prevent some robberies that increases the value of that bus stop for people we can't measure what that is because no one owns it it's um just in the public domain in that sense and so we don't have this same feedback mechanism okay we paid this much to provide that security what's the revenue we gain from that or what are the increase in property values well we might have some measures of revenue gain from more people riding the bus perhaps we can't measure what the increase in property is property value compared to other allocations so in these cases of mass private property where we where i'd say we'd see private security doing things that are similar to what government police do in terms of patrol. Uh, they're mainly focused on prevention. Say so that's a big difference we see is that um, public police are very focused on response. They, I mean, they do engage in randomized patrol often, but they're often waiting to respond to calls. But, you know, all else equal, this is expensive compared to prevention. The process of, say, catching a thief, uh, prosecuting a thief and going and testifying in court and all that. Uh, if you can, you want to prevent these things. And we, so we see private security often focused on prevention and even um, shying away from engaging in prosecution because this is expensive. But whereas from the perspective of a police officer, they can often get overtime from uh, 
being made to testify in court and so forth. So this this is a benefit. It's not a cost. Whereas mm-hmm. for private security, this is a cost. Um, so say we see things focus on prevention. Um, we see things, as you mentioned, like, oh, oh, well, what kind of things would they focus on? How would they behave differently? I think another thing is, um, well, I guess the incentives are different as far as courtesy and so forth, where um, say if we compared something like the TSA compared to if security were provided by airlines, what are the incentives involved there? Let's say the airlines want to protect their hundreds of millions of dollars worth of capital assets. So they have this incentive to be very strict with their security. And we think, oh, just based on that, we'd expect them to be much stricter than the TSA. But it's also the case that they have to compete with other airlines. And so in that regard, they want to be as convenient as possible for travelers to go through security. So that you kind of have both these checks on while making sure security is stringent enough while also keeping it from being so stringent that people don't want to use that service because they can go elsewhere. And so there's a problem with, well, if you have something like the TSA, which um, has a monopoly on airport security, they don't have these same underlying incentives to both. I mean, they could be ultra strict. Um, if one thought that what they're doing is not security theory, but actually protecting planes, but they don't have that countervailing incentive to like, have things be uh, convenient for the consumer. And so I'd say we'd see something analogous uh, in regards to private security. They, they People want to ha- have a pleasant experience if they're at the mall, at the amusement park. Uh, they don't want to have, you know, don't want to be treated like the TSA treats people. And so I'd say you see differences in that regard as well as um, it being related to a customer service uh, experience rather than just command and control where uh, private security pays costs that the government police don't given their status of being able to receive tax revenue rather than voluntary contributions. So uh, say those are the uh, some of the things I'd emphasize and differences you see with private security is being focused on prevention rather than just response and also having to uh, please customers enough to have them enter the private property if it's a situation with mass private property um, versus government police just uh, essentially having this territorial monopoly over a certain area and, I, and I getting think, paid whether people want to or not. Right, exactly. And I think that um, one of the most interesting things that you mentioned there was the idea of like the prevention um, versus the response because when a when the government prevents, they go gun ho on it. You know, there there aren't any restrictions and they're often they're often perceived as being attacks on civil liberty. Um, but if you were to consent to these things, or if you were to sign a contract, or if you were to voluntarily associate with this type of prevention, I think that people's attitudes would to it would be much different. Like if like yeah. people being able to enter your home, um, people that you voluntarily associate, much different than a cop just forcing themselves into your home. Yeah, this is I mean, this issue of civil liberties. I think you have this inherent problem that um brandy barnett points out in the structure of liberty where he says well the goal we have government in charge of policing is well you want to empower them enough to 
know, do this role of keeping the public safe and which can uh, involve the use of force. But they don't face the same constraints that the same economic constraints that say private entities face. And so the goal of having constitutional protections like the Fourth Amendment and so forth is to put a check on the, the ability of uh, agents of government to do this. But there's this inherent trade-off there, whereas, as I mentioned, you want them to be empowered enough to do the policing job, but you don't want them to be so empowered that they become tyrannical. But this this can lead to uh, issues of well, how to navigate this trade-off. And since they don't have this consumer feedback, like we talked about, and people being able to choose between providers of, say, airline security, uh, they don't know how to navigate this trade-off. They, they have this knowledge problem there. And we see private entities uh, implementing certain rules to keep order that, say, people voluntarily put up with, and but, but, which would be unconstitutional if a police officer did that. So an illustration of this I find interesting is uh, the Beatles of Burlington Arcade. So the Burlington Arcade is this upscale shopping area in London, and it's patrolled by – they've been referred to as the world's oldest uh, private police force. They're called the Beatles. You can pull up a picture and see how they dress. It's very charming and old school. And they have certain rules in the Burlington Arcade, which – uh, if enforced by an American police officer in a public area, would be rules are things such as rules against whistling, since whistling is used as this code among pickpockets, and so uh, they have to deal with this problem. Uh, another thing that's prohibited is making clucking noises, since uh, prostitutes in the apartments above the shops would make these clucking noises and wave handkerchiefs, uh, trying to get the attention of potential customers below, and this you know, violated the decorum of the Burlington Arcade. And so they prohibited they prohibited clucking noises. Whereas if um, on an American street, if police officers tried to prevent, and they have had laws against soliciting, um, but this has uh, kind of gotten women who otherwise weren't actually soliciting for prostitution caught in the dragnet, like oh they're hailing a taxi, and so uh, if it is the case on private property where people voluntarily are there, you have this check, as I already mentioned, that people have to be willing to come there, willing to submit to these rules. They can't be so onerous that people go elsewhere. Whereas if you are essentially in a monopoly like a government police force, you don't have the same check. Right. And so the way of dealing with that is, well, we hope, is you have these constitutional rules that can't be violated and somehow courts are supposed to enforce these when violations happen, which uh, the, the track record on that might be uh, less than spectacular. Right. But but there's this inherent problem when you have a monopoly police force trying to enforce these rules. So you have this trade-off um, between civil liberties and I guess, doing the policing job that um, – this trade-off when it's done on private property where the property owner can make the rules and has to compete, that you are able to navigate this trade-off because consumers are able to express their preferences by their decisions to buy or abstain from buying. And now I have some listener questions. So one of them is, so let's say, could would you be in favor of a system where 
a private security force coexist with tax-funded police force? So that's, I mean, I would say that's the situation in which we do live. As I mentioned, there's, they don't get a lot of attention, but there are a lot of private security officers that exist. They, I mean, everything from your Paul Blart mall cops to bodyguards and highly trained security professionals. And so we do have such a system. And I mean, I, I don't know if what gets media attention is necessarily a good indication of uh, what actually is the case. But I think it's curious that even though there are all these private security officers, we don't really hear about them and services in the news, which I think um, we might otherwise hear about if they were occurring. But but that that, that is kind of the, the system in which we live. And that being the case, I mean, there's different economic reasons for why uh, we'd have private security in certain areas uh, and not in others and i think part of that is if there's something that the government police do well there might not be much of a reason to uh, have private police uh, do that thing in the current system whereas things like if i have a giant shopping mall that uh, police aren't going to regularly patrol and it's within my interest to hire private security so this these this kind of patchwork pattern we see is due to I think people responding to, well, maybe what what kind of things can I depend on the government police for or what things do I really need in response to that? You know, people decide I, I need to provide these things for myself or I need to hire someone to do because I just can't depend on the police to do this. Yeah. Or actually, I think one of the biggest, I don't know if I'd call it a security expense, but I've, and the safety of a neighborhood is really capitalized into the price of housing or uh, commercial real estate. And so people are, I mean, just paying for public safety by moving to certain areas. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think in that regard, I think the public police get too much credit for the order that exists. Uh, and there, there are just all these different ways that individuals um, do things either for themselves or contract out to keep them safe. That really have government police in the background. And now here's another one. You've, you've answered it kind of indirectly, but maybe to target it more directly. Um, a lot of people, when I do talk about privatization of police, they talk about, um, well, what happens if someone can't afford it? Are they just going to be left behind? And you kind of mentioned this with the free rider problem, but can you kind of address that? Yeah, I find this, well, yeah, think about this question, find it interesting. Uh, I think we see... Well, with recent events, uh, it's there are certain circumstances in which you cannot depend on the government police. We like to think of it as, well, this is a service that everyone gets, no matter uh, whether they well, can pay. I mean, essentially, they everybody does pay to a certain extent, um, just not a fee-for-service type thing that we might think of uh, in a private sense. Uh, the costs in that way are hidden. But, uh, yeah, in a lot of cases, it's... it's it is the case that people are essentially on their own, as we see with uh, many business owners who are you know, having their property destroyed. They haven't been able to depend on government police, uh, even though ostensibly uh, they they have paid for that sir or somebody has paid for that service and they're supposed to receive it. But in comparison to, say, if we think about different theorists, such as David Friedman and Murray Rothbard trying to describe how uh, a completely 
privatized system of policing might work and how that'd be funded. And they focus on things like yeah, in buying an insurance policy and so forth. And maybe there'd be some of that. I, well, I, I would expect that policing would mainly be bundled with uh, whatever property. Um, so, so if it's if you're within some kind of homeowners, homeowners association or condo or um, in terms of commercials, if I um, go to a commercial complex, the owner might have security there. I guess I would see security being less tied to individuals as David Friedman and Murray Rothbard see it in terms of insurance system and more associated with a certain type of, with the property itself, mm. since most of the benefits of policing accrue to like, the property being protected. Right. And so I would, I would expect if say there were no government police force to speak of that, um, people providing housing, uh, people providing uh, commercial things, malls, entertainment, that the security would be bundled with that. So the poor, when they go shopping at these types of places, they're already paying for it in that way. So that, in that sense, they already have private police right. you know, when they're on that uh, real estate. And I would expect that to be more the case with housing um, since uh, – that type of property relationship we have, say, in a residential neighborhood, a small pieces of private property uh, next to each other, that say that's been a situation that say is more uh, has relied more upon the p- public police, right? Because of the difficulties of contracting with one another. But in the absence of that, so this is one of those things where I think the state has crowded out. Um, more private policing, but it does exist to a certain extent in certain pockets where people have come to uh, completely become uh, unable to rely on the police, such as in Detroit, where a lot of uh, the the budget, the current budget for police is paying for retirees, is paying for pensions. And so people have to wait a long time that we've seen, um, such as the Detroit Threat Management Center has found a niche uh, within residential communities since they're unable to rely on uh, the Detroit police force for this. So I think uh, people would respond in the absence of um, police that this would be priced in to their housing. But it, So I hope that somewhat gets at the question. I would see this as being a service bundled with things like housing, as it already is with commercial real estate, or and as well as housing in some circumstances, but not all. Right. Yeah, that's super interesting because I think a lot of people might actually think of it as like, oh, well, you're just going to have to hire a bunch of bodyguards and have them uh, surround you the entire time. But instead, it would be like, well, you'd walk into a mall and when you buy a product, um, the security within the mall that will protect you is built into the price of what you're purchasing. And everyone, whenever they have these services and they pay for these services at the mall, they're paying for the the protection as well within the mall. Um, I think that that's a very yeah. interesting idea. Yeah, I think I mean, that's how we see most, I mean, a lot of privacy, of course, I mean, the property owner is paying directly for it, but the people experiencing the security, it's often bundled with something else. I think if we're just imagining, we tend to think of, oh, we're going to pay them directly. But I think in most cases, it'll be bundled with some some other service, okay. such as housing. Okay, cool. So another question that I got is like, uh, and I know that this isn't your ideal, you would you would be in favor of a privatization altogether. But within the current system that we have today, would you be in favor of, um, instead of 
the taxpayer paying for certain um, burdens that they might have. So like if if someone gets sued, the police department gets sued or something like that, um, the taxpayer pays for most of that. Would you be in favor of the union having to pick up that cost instead? Yes, this is an interesting question since, for those interested in the topic, I think there's a really great paper on this uh, by Joanna Schwartz called Police Indemnification, in which she found that in almost all cases in which police officers were were found against in some type of civil judgment, they violated someone's civil liberties, they have to pay damages, uh, almost never do they pay out of pocket. And when they do, it's a small percentage. So it, in these cases, it is taxpayers, it is the municipality paying for it. And of course, there have been some, some cases, there's also an interesting paper um, Oh, I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but it's about cities paying for insurance policies regarding uh, these types of issues and where these insurance companies have been involved in the regulation of police conduct. In term, so uh, if you're going to get this uh, policy and pay these premiums, we're going to have you follow these rules as far as policing. So I find that kind of an interesting idea of um, – so. People who actually have financial skin in the game uh, regulating uh, police conduct. So, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, of course, it'd be great to have (laughs) the idea of having police unions rather than taxpayers paying. But an issue with this where I want to acknowledge that there is this trade-off when we think, oh, well, certain police reforms uh, just seem like a no-brainer. There often is this trade-off that... So, for example, what I argue about police unions is that these protections that they enjoy serve as a compensating differential. That is, um, you can pay them lower monetary wages, just like, I mean, it's kind of the same thing as tenure for a professor. That is, if they have this guaranteed employment, um, you can pay them a lower wage, all else held constant, than you would if they could be fired at will. They'd You'd have to pay them a higher wage. And so it's the kind of the same thing with these protections of police that taxpayers, uh, at least, uh, I mean, it may come back later when they're paying all these judgments that it wasn't, wasn't a cheaper option, but at least in the short run, they might be able to pay lower monetary costs because police officers have these protections. And so a, a phenomenon that's gotten more attention, especially just over the last few years is this uh, idea of de-policing. That is police officers just doing the minimum possible because because they're afraid of uh, getting this negative media attention and that more law and order types really decry this as, oh, this is terrible Uh, if police aren't going to do their job. So, I mean, there can be this potential risk that if it's the case that police unions like, well, we don't want to be on the hook for these things, given their monopoly status, um, or maybe I shouldn't say monopoly since, as I said earlier, in a lot of niches, private security really exists. So I wouldn't say they have a monopoly on security necessarily, just um, a type of monopoly that allows them to be paid through uh, taxpayer funds that they're able to provide a, a low quality service and still get paid. So I think there's, uh, with that, I think there's this potential issue that they're like, well, if we have to pay, then, oh, it, we might see the same thing that we see in some cases with these riots. We're just going to sit on the sidelines and 
because we don't want to risk you know, uh, civil liabilities. We don't want to risk our safety. We're just going to you know, stand aside. So I think that might be a potential issue okay. if it's the case that police unions are on the hook. What if what if individuals were on the hook and they had malpractice insurance or something like that? Yeah, I think in that case, well, you do face a similar issue. If it, I mean, this is what interviewed officers say about de-policing. It's like, oh, well, I wondered why. I remember one uh, younger officer interviewed was, he said, well, when I first started working as an officer, I wondered why these older cops were just so lazy. And then I found out, oh, they... You know, tried to be good police, but then they got in trouble for whatever reason unfairly. And so I can understand why they'd want to try to do the minimum possible. So I think, well, what you'd have to have for that to counteract, like, um, say, de-policing is, uh, I don't know, most police officers are very... I mean, they're, they're unsupervised to an extent. I mean, if in certain types of production, you can have a supervisor who can really measure the productivity of an employee. As police are out patrolling alone, um, they're hard to monitor. So I don't know that you could have a supervisor making sure they don't slack off in these ways. And then we get back to that issue I mentioned earlier of how do we measure the output of police officers in the absence of profit and loss? It's, you know, do we want them to maximize arrests? I mean, maybe not. Maybe they'll make uh, certain types of arrests we don't, well, we don't think it's a good use of resources or maximizing citations. So how do we, so th- there's this inherent difficulty in how public policing is structured in that it's hard to measure their output in terms of what consumers want. They do try to maximize certain measures, but those might not be what consumers want. So there's this these two poles of we don't uh, presumably don't want them to do absolute or maybe we do want them to do absolutely nothing. But that's a risk if um, they're going to be held personally liable. They might not um, be as gung ho about providing as good of a service. Whereas if they're completely protected, then we might have problems at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. Whereas I are you we don't these problems are mitigated with private policing because they have these incentives in each direction they have to compete with other services so they want to provide some you know, um a service that is say yes I, I don't know assertive i guess <laughs> that they, they don't want to just sit on the sidelines but right. they don't want to be so gung-ho that they're getting civil judgments against them because they're going to have to pay right and so I, i'd say in that case we see the incentives align whereas uh, with public policing we have problems on each end of the spectrum of being too gung-ho and then just de-policing mm. and it's so uh, because you have a system where consumers aren't able to give the same feedback like they are in a market that uh they're unable to find that optimal negotiation between those two values. Hmm. Now, if, and if I think that problem's inherent, right now, if it would be incorrect to say that they're a monopoly on security, would you say that they're a monopoly on violence? And if so, um, why is it that private police wouldn't be able to be violent and um, if they were violent, how would they be? Would would they be accountable to a co- higher court system or something like that? Yeah. So, uh, as far as yeah, maybe I shouldn't talk about police having a like a monopoly. I mean, we talk about like the Weberian definition of the state as having a monopoly on the legitimate use of force mm-hmm. within a, a a certain geographical area. And I don't know if that's quite accurate either. I mean. 
it is the case that uh, according to the legal system, you and I as individuals have the ability to use violence and self-defense, and that's considered legally justified. Right. And say private security has uh, – they don't have these special rights that police officers have. Um, they have the same rights as we have. So to that extent, uh, they would be subject to the legal system in a way that police officers aren't. They may – I, I guess we'll see what's the case for this Minneapolis police officer who has been arrested and charged. But in a lot of these high-profile cases, you see that um, police officers are either grand jury fails to indict or they're acquitted. It's very rare for a police officer to be prosecuted for murder while on duty. But as far as private entities go, what what kind of things would hold them accountable? Because in some cases, violence is used. Um, examples well even though it wasn't private security being used in these cases i think they're still illustrative illustrative (laughs) that if we think about say the example with uh the starbucks in philadelphia where the two men who they were i guess just loitering they didn't buy anything they're just sitting there the cops were called they were removed this became a big issue, a big embarrassment for Starbucks where they um, implemented all this employee training. I mean, it went through a high expense. Um, and another example like that was United Airlines offering uh, – removing a passenger for uh, failing to leave. They, they offered passengers some financial incentives to uh, leave the flight because they overbooked it. Uh, this guy didn't want to leave, so they had the Chicago police come remove him. And in both these cases, even though it was public police actually doing the work, we, it was at the behest of Starbucks and United. And the, I think they both found that in these cases, they made the wrong decision. That is, um, as a business owner, you don't want to respond to any nuisance with the use of force. You only want to do it when the uh, – you want to tolerate it until the marginal cost of whatever that problem is is lower than the – cost of the use of force. And in different contexts, I mean, this calculation might be different, whereas, say, for a nightclub, bouncers often use physical force, and but they, they don't want to do that for anyone. They want to make sure if somebody's being a nuisance, they only want to resort to it when the um, cost of using physical force is lower than the cost of uh, whatever that nuisance is. And I think both for Starbucks and United, because they are for-profit businesses and they can see the responses, well, I mean, of course, it isn't one-to-one response. They can't identify each person like, oh, I'm not going to go to Starbucks anymore because um, I don't like them due to this reason, or I don't want to fly with United because I'm afraid of they might use violence against me. But they're able to see they have some kind of measure of revenues and can see, oh, well, um, we have this feedback mechanism if we used violence in a case that people don't see as justified. So I'd say that I would say that might be the greatest check. I mean, uh, consumers choosing whether or not to frequent this business. But um, as I mentioned earlier, they don't have these same privileges uh, that police officers have as far as being protected from uh, criminal and civil liability. And so I think it just makes business sense to try to avoid um, using violence to the greatest extent possible until whatever you're responding to is more costly than uh, the use of violence. 
And then I have another question. It's asking, why isn't patriotism more efficient than privatization? Well, okay. <laughs> well I mean, I hope I get um, the sense in which the questioner is asking this, but it reminds me of a discussion I had with um, Professor Pete Leeson at George Mason, where he was arguing I mean, this that patriotism, in a sense, operates as this compensating differential. He thinks that's the purpose of it. Like, why, why do we um, you know, always salute the troops, you know, uh, back the blue, all these things? Is that, oh, it's so we can pay them lower wages. That if people, I, if people are constantly thanking veterans and so forth, then, oh, being uh, in the military is going to be more attractive um, because people like you. Yeah. So you can get induce the marginal person to enter the military with these types of perks and pay them a lower wage. So his explanation for patriotism in that sense is to save money on how much you have to pay you know, <laughs> uh, people in the military or police officers. So I think, well, yeah, it, uh, yeah. So I, I don't know if that response really gets at the what the questioner is asking, but I think a lot of people. Uh, who otherwise see themselves as patriotic, you know, they, I mean, there's perhaps so much that they're willing to put up with. I mean, there's certain things they see as unjust. So, uh, so in that way, I don't think it can be a perfect substitute. Mm. What would you say to people that say justice shouldn't be bought or sold? So I think that's probably, yeah. The case it shouldn't be, but we live in a world of scarcity, and we have to think of alternative systems of providing um, certain goods like justice. So, you know, being that resources are scarce, um, that we can't attain all the ends we want. So, anyway, I mean, we see this in the criminal justice system. If we think the goal of state the correct system should be retribution, and we only have so many prison cells and so forth uh this comes at a cost right and or even as another example in what i was talking about earlier where if police officers have these protections uh you they're well equal you're able to pay them lower wages this might lead to some kinds of injustice where police officers aren't held accountable in a way we might otherwise like to see but say we got rid of these protections uh you have to pay them higher wages. In fact, I mean, I'm going to say this is directly the case. Uh, in Chicago, the, there was a task force set up regarding police accountability. What kind of things should we change? One of their recommendations was, oh, we should get rid of these certain protections that police officers have through their unions, some of which I mentioned. And the Fraternal Order of Police Presidents said, yeah, we'd be willing to do that. Just bring your checkbook. So mm. they, and before that, in lieu of pay raises, they were willing to accept more protections. So these are a form of compensation, non-monetary compensation. So I wonder if, you, uh, if we took a poll of most Americans, how much would you be willing to pay in order for there to be less police misconduct? So, well, I don't know how much most people would be willing to pay, but it comes at a cost. And I... You often hear economists say that the economically efficient level of whatever bad thing is not zero. At some point, the costs of mitigating pollution, say, 
uh, become greater than the nuisance of pollution. Mm. So it's, we wouldn't be willing to pay all the costs of having just zero pollution. And the same thing with crime. And I think the same thing with injustice. So uh, we, I guess depending on our values, we try to find the best uh, system of political economy for, for providing certain things. And uh, they, they result in different outcomes. But I don't think you can really get rid of this issue of uh, people who have more resources maybe are able to purchase more justice than those who don't. Mm-hmm. And I don't think in any system of political economy you can get around that. Right. So even within today's society, you would say that in a way they are justice is being purchased and boss, bought because it's, an, it's like a natural law for there to be um, resources being allocated simply due to the fact that um, resources are scarce. Yeah, and, and certain people can afford, say, better defense attorneys and so forth. And I, I don't think there's any, yeah, I don't know how you'd get around that. Okay. Here's another question. It's how would bribery not occur in a private system? As in, like, why doesn't China just buy the private police? <laughs> yeah, so let's say why doesn't occur well maybe maybe it does to a certain extent but say again we have to compare different systems of providing something so in the current system if we have a judge who's accepting bribes it's i it's not like people are choosing that judge whereas if we have a system of private arbitration which does exist to a big extent uh, even mentioning uh, arbitration among police unions and police management, they'll have have lists of arbitrators and each side will like cross off a name until they arrive at a certain one that I guess is mutually agreeable or they've run out of their ability to cross off names. If you're an arbitrator who's seen as taking bribes and totally favoring one side and that you're not going to be chosen as an arbitrator, somebody's going to cross you off. So there is this incentive to maintain this impartiality to the greatest extent you can. And I wouldn't, not that I'd necessarily say a system private policing might uh, completely get rid of such uh, problems with bribery. Uh, I'd say the problems are mitigated compared to a system in which you have a monopoly. Like um, say, if we compare, just say bribery regarding drug, possession drug uh, trafficking because another example of private policing um I think there's an interesting book for the for those who are interested uh, called parapolice uh, by ross mcleod there's a service called intelligard in canada and their clients places such as housing complexes and um, one of the things people wanted to get rid of within, within these housing complexes was the drug trafficking that occurred you know, within the parking garage or outside uh, so in that case, potentially, the drug traffickers could bribe the private security at this place. But um, this comes at a cost. If we as the management see that, oh, this private security service is allowing drugs because the drug dealers are paying them on our property, well, there's still this element of competition. We can get rid of them and replace them, which doesn't exist for a municipal police service with, well, as a... Yeah, I have to think about it. I'm not necessarily as a monopoly, but this ability to continue getting paid, even though no one's voluntarily paying them. So I'd say if one concerned about bribery, I don't, I don't see that 
um, a monopolistic criminal justice system is advantageous mm. in that regard. Now, recently, there's been a lot of talk about uh, qualified immunity. And I did get one question from someone asking about uh, whether or not you think that that's a big issue. I do think that, yeah, it is a big issue in certain circumstances where I mean, police are doing I mean, certain crazy things. <laughs> I was, I, mean, I think of some regarding qualified immunity involving they flashbang grenades and whether this was whether this officer should be protected based on their use of this when children are present in a room and they're doing no knock grades and so forth like these types of extreme military type tactics uh, when policing civilians and uh, the case law regarding this is pretty crazy in that well this wasn't explicitly prohibited uh, therefore, because I mean, qualified immunity protects officers from liability in in the cases where they're not like flagrantly and knowingly violating a well-established right. I was like, well, do you have this well-established right to not have flashbang grenades thrown in your living room? <laughs> well, we don't really have any case law regarding that. So it's kind of this weird thing where, well, no one's explicitly prohibited this. So, mm-hmm. well... It's hard to say that, oh, this this uh, violated well-established constitutional rights. And so that, to that extent, a, yeah, I think qualified immunity presents a real problem in that regard. And that's you know a privilege that private police don't enjoy. And I think that's a reason why you don't see all these same types of things happening. Uh, so, and we... People have tried to justify it for the same reason. They say there is this trade-off where you want police to not be so afraid of being liable. But um, I think, if anything, it's gone too much towards that side of, well, maybe there's not uh, enough caution. Right. So, yeah. Well, I think we're actually finished up here. But if you want to um, tell people anything else, if there's anything else, like if, um, you know, there are a bunch of people out here, out there who I really don't think will be convinced simply because of the word for profit, you know, uh, the stigma around that. If there's anything you would like to say to those people, if there's any last words that you have, and if you want to tell people um, where they can find you, that would be great. Sure. So, yeah, it is, I think, difficult getting over this, uh, these associations we have with for profit that people are just uh, thinking about themselves, doing the now, best they can for themselves and th- this coming at the expense of others and I don't know if this is you know, convincing them but I think like we talked about a few times um, during our discussion that we really have to compare like, what kind of systems are possible um, that is we might have to choose among you know, different bad systems which one's the least bad and so we don't have we can't have perfection but um, so we want to find what aligns incentives to come to those best outcomes. And another thing I'd like to add is just because people are in government or in nonprofits or whatever, it, it doesn't change the nature of human beings. They uh, are a lot of them still are looking out for themselves and to the extent that they can be protected from accountability, um, such as in these cases with police officers, this isn't necessarily a better outcome. So I think we want to think about um, 
the institutions involved, what the incentives those create, and not automatically give a- agents in government or in nonprofits a pass just because they're not for profit. I mean, we can think of like Harvard's a nonprofit. They have you know, these tens of billions in endowments. Um, they, people in higher education and academia, they're no less in pursuit of money than anyone else and other benefits. So, and, and I would know. So I, I think we need to look at you know, what are the results rather than, oh, these people are in pursuit of money. Well, everyone is. What are the results of that system? Uh, so uh, people can find me. My website is tatefegley.com. Um, I often write for Mises.org. Um, have a few journal articles forthcoming if people are interested in this subject. Um, one is in the Independent Review called uh, Police Unions and Officer Privileges. And, and also have some work coming out in the Journal of Institutional Economics, or, or hopefully uh, they've invited me to revise and resubmit it. We'll see if they eventually accept it regarding these issues of community policing and private policing. So those are um, some of the ways you can find me, find my work, and we'll be happy to chat with anyone who wants to continue the discussion. And I will link all of those articles to um, the show notes page under the, under the link. So um, if anyone wants to read them, they can go to them when they come out. But I really appreciate you coming on. This was a great conversation. Oh, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's the weekend, we can let go. It's the full send, it's the get-go.